Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and we are ripping our way through the 32 countries that are participating in the World Cup in Qatar. Um, And Dominic, today we are coming to Denmark. Uh, and Denmark, of course, uh, has already, we, we've already had a, a football tournament inspired episode on Denmark, haven't we? Because uh, last, um, summer before last, uh, during the Euros, we, um, England ended up playing against Denmark in, what was it, the semi-finals, I think? Um, and, uh, and so we did an episode on Anglo-Danish relations over the course of the centuries. But um, today we're looking at a distinct, and I have to say a very noble moment in Danish history. So what have you chosen to represent Denmark? Well, lots of people would anticipate that when we're doing a podcast on Denmark, we would do something to do with the Vikings. And I've gone to completely the opposite end of the spectrum. We are in the 20th century, and we are doing what's almost a first for the rest of history, Tom, because we are doing what is, I think we can say, safely say, is an almost entirely good news story. Because most historical stories end with everybody dying, don't they? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, when they're packed with incident, that basically means there's an awful lot of fighting or something of that ilk. But this is a story in which people actually, and, and some very surprising people, behave really rather well. So the story is the rescue of the Danish Jews. and um, During the Second World War. During the Second World yeah. War. And we'll start with them right at the beginning of the Second World War. So... The Second World War breaks out, as everybody should know, in September 1939, and Denmark is formally neutral. But uh, from the turn of that, from the end of that year, uh, Hitler and the German leadership have plans basically to occupy Denmark because they want to occupy Norway. Um, they want Norway for its access to minerals. They think it's very important kind of for resources. It's uranium. And, is that right? Exactly. Things coming in from Sweden and so on to the coast of Norway. But they can't really, they don't think they can get Norway strate- from, for strategic reasons without also taking Denmark because um, they can't allow Denmark to fall into kind of British or French hands. So they draw up these plans to occupy Denmark and they strike very suddenly and very effectively. At 415 9th of April 1940, the Germans pile across the border. They, they the Schleswig-Holstein. Schleswig-Holstein, exactly, yeah. exactly, which, of course, they fought a war with the Danes about um, in the 1860s, I think it was. Uh, they're unloaded. They've got sh- men r- ready in the troop ships in Copenhagen Harbour. They pile onto the quays. Um, there's a little bit of resistance. 16 Danish soldiers are killed. But after just two hours, so I said the invasion began at 4.15, at about 6.15, the Danish government decides that the game is up and orders a surrender. Um, And by 8.34, exactly in the morning, 
um, the Danes have formally capitulated. So in other words, if you went to bed on the night of the 8th of April, mm. you could plausibly not even have woken yeah. up. Turn the news on. I wonder if anything's happened. Oh, my God. But we're occupied by the Nazis. We've been yes. invaded and we've surrendered already. Now, sometimes people say well, this is very uh, this is very poor performance by the Danes. But, of course, Denmark is very flat. Jutland um, is very flat. They have a land border with Germany. There is no conceivable way that they can hold out against the Germans. They only have a tiny army. They're facing the might of Hitler's war machine. Uh, it kind of makes sense from their point of view to surrender. The, to fight on would be absolutely futile. But this is an occupation with a slight twist, because what they, they do is the Germans say that Denmark will basically be a German protectorate, but they will allow the Danes independence in their own kind of domestic affairs. So why is it that this happens? Well, obviously, Denmark and Germany have kind of quite interlinked, in intermingled histories. There's a lot of bad blood because of the war about Schleswig-Holstein in the mid-19th century. But to the Germans, the Danes are fellow Aryans of Nordic stock. Yeah, Nordic stock. They think that they can run Denmark as a kind of, uh, as a sort of model, as a model protectorate to show what life will be like for Europeans under Hitler's new order. And they also want to get a lot of food and dairy stuff and all these kinds of things from Denmark. Bacon. Bacon. No, they genuinely want all that stuff, Tom. And they they think that they can do it best if the Danes cooperate. So what the Danes are doing with the Germans is they have this sort of policy, which they call kind of cooperation, but not collaboration. In other words, they're not happy about being occupied, and then they're not going to do more than the bare minimum. But equally, they're not going to sort of willfully provoke the Germans. So kind of assassinating local Nazi leaders and things. Yeah. And so what happens is the Germans allow them to have their own government and to have their parliament and to run their own police and to run their own courts. And indeed, they're the king, to King Christian X, to remain in the country. But they will have the country run, first of all, by the German ambassador, and secondly, by an SS general called Werner Best, who we will come back to later in the podcast. So people outside Denmark, the most famous aspect of this is the what happens to the king, Christian X. He's about he's almost 70. He is the absolute if you if you am asked a casting agency to supply a kind of noble upstanding Scandinavian king from the early part of the 20th century Christian X is your man he looks very austere and very stiff in his uniform but he's got a tremendous sense of dignity and patriotism and stuff and he does this famous thing and they're actually very moving if you watch the clips the newsreel clips during the German occupation um every day he mounts his horse jubilee and he he rides unaccompanied by guards through the streets of Copenhagen and uh, the people stand and watch and they wear little buttons with um, the insignia of the king or the Danish flag to, symb to symbolize their support for him and they applaud or they bow or whatever. And he rides through the streets as basically a living symbol that Danish sovereignty still endures and that one day they will they will be free. And a kind of striking contrast with other European countries that were more brutally invaded and whose royal families fled to London. Exactly. So Christian X is still serving as a, a focus for national pride and resistance, even though he's still in situ. Yeah, exactly. So he's remaining there. He's remaining there as the embodiment of, of Denmark, I suppose. The other thing that a lot of people may know about Denmark in the Second World War 
is that um, the king makes it very clear and Danish politicians make it very clear that they will not accept any repressive measures against their Jewish population. So the Jewish population in Denmark is very small. So there's about 6,000 people and then several hundred people more who are sort of associated family members and so on. So you compare that with the Netherlands, nearby country occupied by the Germans, where there are 140,000 Jews, or indeed Poland, where there are more than 3 million. So the Danish Jewish population is tiny, but it's very, very well assimilated. So there's very little sense of kind of difference and very little anti-Semitism. And the king in particular makes it very clear that he will not accept any persecution of the Jews. So the most famous story that's told about him is that if the Germans make the Danish Jews wear a yellow star to identify themselves, to sort of mark them out, he will wear them one too. Is that true? Well, what people often get wrong is they say he did wear one. Right. He definitely didn't. He definitely didn't because the Germans never introduced the measure. But that story of him saying that is true, is it? But the story is absolutely true. He says he has a meeting with his prime minister and he tells his prime minister, he writes in his diary afterwards, he says, I told the prime minister that I consider our own Jews to be Danish citizens and the Germans cannot touch them. That is admirable behavior. So the king is absolutely adamant about this. And Denmark has this immensely admirable I mean, I love Denmark. I, I'm completely unashamed in my love of Denmark and indeed all Scandinavian countries. But Denmark in the years before the Second World War has a very kind of social democratic, anti-totalitarian political culture. There's a sort of sense that they've developed of we're all Danes together and we will not allow the occupiers to, to break us apart. Now, the Germans obviously find that very annoying. And indeed, Hitler finds King Christian X enormously annoying and over time although the danish resistance is quite small scale over time the germans become crosser and crosser with the danes so the most famous example is something called the telegram crisis in october 1942 this is a hilarious story Um, (laughs) the king turns 72 and hitler who's hoping to sort of butter him up in order to you know maybe get the danes to play ball um, he sends an effusive telegram to the king to wish him happy birthday and the king sends back a message which is just one line which is sprecher meinen besten dank aus christian rex which basically translates as thanks a lot king christian yeah which hitler is absolutely furious that he has been sort of fobbed off in this way he actually recalls his ambassador from copenhagen and he kicks the danish ambassador out of germany because he's so offended by the king's perfunctory telegram taciturnity yeah taciturnity exactly this sort of cold response but i mean that's very that's very kind of royal scandinavian royal behavior isn't it i mean i i think i think they would normally send a more effusive reply tom do you not think if i sent a message of congratulations tomorrow to the danish royal family i would like to think i'd receive a more effusive message no but not if they were mid 20th century i would i would hope for a very stiff and formal reply i'd be (laughs) frankly disappointed if i didn't get one would you yeah i wouldn't want any kind of emoting or anything like that i I would like to think that their response to this podcast will be more effusive (laughs) i look forward to hearing what the danish royal family make of this podcast it was all right so yes thank you for your podcast thank you for your podcast (laughs) we haven't listened to it but we appreciate it the telegram (laughs) crisis um sets the scene for months of worsening relations and there are strikes in denmark and people are increasingly refusing to cooperate with the germans the germans in august 1943 present the danes with an ultimatum and they basically say sort it out 
you know, cut the strikes, uh, ban on public assembly. We want you to censor your newspapers. Of course, the Germans are jittery at this stage. It's 1943. The war's not going well. They've had the disaster at Stalingrad and so on. So they're just generally in, on edge. And the Danes say, absolutely no way. So at the end of August 1943, the Germans dissolve the Danish government and they declare martial law. And they say, enough of this sort of pretense. We're running the show now. And obviously, at this point, the Germans think now is the time to move against the 6,000 or so Danish Jews and their dependents. This is the moment to strike. And now a genuinely heroic figure enters the story. And this is a German, a German attache at the embassy in Copenhagen, who is called Georg Ferdinand Duckwitz. Great name. And Herr Duckwitz has... He's got a long history of, of with the Danes. He lived in Copenhagen years before in the 1920s. He'd actually been a Nazi since 1932. But he was on the sort of, I know this will sound weird to some listeners, he was on the sort of left wing of the Nazi party. So more socialist than national. Exactly. He had, me, he had met a guy called Gregor Strasser, who is one of the sort of early figures in the, in the Nazi movement, but very much on the sort of, had, had stressed the socialist rather in, in national socialist. And Duckwitz, this sort of diplomatic figure, he had thought, well, maybe the Nazis will be the sort of German nationalist equivalent of Scandinavian social democracy, you know. And he worked at the German embassy, but over time he'd become conflicted about what was happening. And he works closely with the SS general who is now in charge of Denmark, who's this guy called Werner Best. And at the beginning of September 1943, Werner Best says to him, we are planning to round up all the Danish Jews and deport them. We're going to deal with them now. Why does Werner Best tell Duckwitz this? Well, we'll come back to Werner Best after the break, because that's an interesting story. Duckwitz thinks this is a terrible idea. You know, he doesn't like it. I think he doesn't like it because he doesn't like it, but he also doesn't like it because he thinks it will really inflame the Danes and make it impossible to kind of administer the country. It will, it will provoke massive resistance. Dugwitz goes to Berlin and he says, I don't think we should do this and nobody listens. Then, interestingly, he goes to Stockholm to have a meeting about German merchant shipping. And during this meeting, he says to the Swedes, if there's a roundup of the Danish Jews, would you receive Danish Jewish refugees? And the Swedes say, yeah, we might, because Sweden, of course, is neutral. And Sweden and Denmark are only about an hour's boat ride apart. So the Danish Jews could get there. I mean, there is the bridge now, Tom, from the bridge, if you've the bridge, the TV yeah. series. But there, there wasn't then, but obviously it's, it's yes. narrow enough for there to be a have bridge. You ever, have you been over that bridge? Yeah, I have. To Malmo. We went over the bridge and we went over the bridge. And as we went over the bridge, we put on in the car the theme tune from the, the bridge. bridge. I love yeah. that. I dominate. I so approve of the fact that you put on. Music appropriate to where you're going. Absolutely, I, I, I absolutely do as well. Even though people couldn't hear it, I detected in the in the sight of other other drivers a sense of weariness when they looked at us in our car, swinging along <laughs> to the, the theme from the bridge. Anyway, we mustn't get distracted by talk of the right. bridge. So no, we mustn't. So right, Doug Fitz he gets back to um, Copenhagen and he contacts a leading Danish social democratic politician called Hans Hedtoft, and he says to him, "Listen." We are planning to round up all the Jews. This is your chance. You have a very small window to do something about it. And um, Hedtoff does. He has a meeting with the chief rabbi of Denmark, who's a guy called Marcus Melchior. And he says, 
you know, you've got to tell everybody, tell them all. Um, Because, of course, the numbers are quite small. You could you could do something. So the next day is the day before the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. And Marcus Melchior goes into the synagogue and he addresses his congregation in Copenhagen. And he says, there will be no service today. This is the moment that the crisis has come. Everybody go home, sort out your affairs, pack your bags, go into hiding. Because, of course, a lot of people have already made had thought about what, what they would do in this situation. Tell everybody you know, spread the word. We must do it. Meanwhile, although the parliament has been kicked out and the Danish government is gone, the country is still being run by civil servants, obviously. Yeah. So the word has spread among Danish civil servants. And they say to one another, listen, um, contact your friends, tell everybody you know who's Jewish. They even tell some of, the, some of their friends to go through the telephone books and to ring, try and ring everybody with Jewish sounding names, telling them, go into hiding. This is your this is your moment. And so everything is sort of put into place and people and, and Jewish families start to sort of disappear quietly from the streets of Copenhagen. So they go into their friends' houses or they go to summer houses or they're hidden in s- cellars and attics and so on and so forth. And meanwhile, just before the break, one other thing happens. One of the people who has been warned, who escapes very early on, is the physicist Niels Bohr. Oh, one right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Titanic figures in the atomic research of the 20th century and later on in the Manhattan Project. And who was, um, who was I think, a, a colleague of Bernard von Braun, wasn't he? The German rocket guy. Was he? That I did not know, Tom. But there was I a play you know. There was a play at the National Theatre, which I saw. Is it Copenhagen by Michael Frayn? Yes, exactly so. So I know about plays, but I know nothing of science. So this <laughs> is... Uh... <laughs> well, that, yeah, that was a play, so... But I'll tell you what Niels Bohr does. He, he's Jewish. He escapes to Sweden, gets to Sweden. And this is an extraordinary fact, Tom. He decides, he, he thinks he, he must make sure that the Swedes will receive any refugees. So he tries to get an audience with King Gustav V of Sweden. This is a story in which kings, by kings the way. Kings are coming out very well. Yeah. There are three countries involved in this story, Tom. Two of them are monarchies and one of them is a republic. And um, it's the monarchies that emerge very well from this story and the republic that frankly let itself down during these years. Are you calling Germany the republic? Yeah. Well, they are a republic, aren't they? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely proof positive, if any were needed, that monarchy is the most natural and benevolent form of government. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a polemical payoff that perhaps we should take a break, should we? Well, point? can I just tell you what happens oh, to Oh, no. You, oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes. 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 Sorry. So he wants to talk to King Gustav V, but King Gustav V doesn't just talk to anybody, Tom. Well, he's a king. You need somebody to intercede with you to get an appointment with the king, a telephone appointment. Who would you turn to in that? You need a Swede. You need a big name Swede from the 20th century. Uh, Abba. No, they're not alive. No. <laughs> at this point. Tom, you'd ask, you'd ask Greta Garbo. Yeah, of course you'd ask Greta Garbo. And Greta Garbo, who is already friends with Niels Bohr, I don't know how, She's clearly more interested in science than I am. Uh, she intercedes with the king. She gets Bohr an audience. She rings the king and says, see this fellow Bohr. The king says, yes, splendid. We'll happily take um, Danish Jews. And so on the 2nd of October, Swedish radio broadcasts a message to say that all Danish Jews are welcome in Sweden. And so the stage is set for a tremendous good news story, which okay. Tom, I think we should come to after the break. Yeah. Wonderful setup, Dominic. Thank you. Uh, we will see you back, as Dominic said, after the break. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to our Danish-themed Rest is History episode. Um, and Dominic, as you said, a, a good news story. Um, so the Danish Jews are under threat of being rounded up by the Nazi occupiers. Um, but thanks to, um, what was his name, the German? Drakesford? Uh, <laughs> Drakesford, he's the bloke who's running Wales. Uh, Duckfits. <laughs> Duckfits, I knew it had some, some aquatic bird. <laughs> some, some aquatic birdling. 
<laughs> it's great to yes. see that you're paying so much attention, Tom. <laughs> well, we've, I sh- we, we should mention to this, we've done four episodes and uh, so far. <laughs> yeah, today. <laughs> so my brain is starting to slightly flag. Um, yeah, so, so him and uh, Niels Bohr and uh, Greta, the, Garbo. The, the, the Greta Garbo and the kings, respectively, of Denmark and Sweden. And they're all coming out of the story very well. But now we're about to look the whole of the Danish people come out of this. Very yes. Well. So there is no network to help. The, these Jewish families that have gone into hiding. There was nothing, Tom, but the goodwill of the Danish people. So all it's sort of family by, there's no organization. There's no mass movement. There's no, there's nothing like that. It's on a family by family basis. People stay in seaside homes. They find people who hide them in churches. They in hospitals, in hotels, all of these kinds of things. And we're talking about when you include all their children and sort of family members and so on, it's nearly 8,000 people. And the people who help them are this incredible cross-section of Danish. So basically everybody helps them. It's this incredible cross-section of Danish society. It's kind of literally is the butcher, the baker, and the, and the candlestick maker. And they move from village to village um, under cover of darkness and so on to the coast, to the coast of Zealand. And when they get there, the fishermen being canny entrepreneurs, they often charge. So when they think people have got money, they will say, you know, we'll take some payment. Thank you. But they are transported on fishing boats. They are transported on rowboats, sometimes even in kayaks, unbelievably. It takes about an hour on this. Sort very of Viking spirit. Very Viking across the Orasund, which is the channel that divides Denmark and Sweden. And the Germans are oblivious to this, are they? Well, we'll come to the Germans in just a second. The Germans start to get... Because um, they must have... I mean, they must be keeping an eye on the... Yes. On the shipping channels. Very... Well, ah, well, this is a very important point, Tom. That's very astute of you to raise it. And we should come back to this uh, in, a, in a little while, in five minutes or so. But just before this, the Germans absolutely are sort of on their, on their case. Because when the Germans launched the roundup in Copenhagen, they're like, where is everybody? They've all vanished. So there's a slight sort of, it's amazing to me that this has not been made into a huge budget kind of Hollywood movie because it is such a good story. And some of the aspects of it are almost sort of mind bogglingly cinematic, just the sort of almost like an Ealing comedy. So they to, to focus in on three elements. So you can imagine the Germans are sort of pursuing them to the coast, trying to find them. And, and there are three particular stories that I want to um, just hone in on very briefly. So all these little groups that help the Jews often have their, have um, very entertaining names. So one of them, for example, is something called the Elsinore Sewing Club. <laughs> <laughs> and the Elsinore Sewing Club is a group of four people in Elsinore, or Helsingor in um, Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Danish coast, famous, of course, from Hamlet. Uh, they're the, the local bookbinder, who's called Erling Kier, the police officer, Thermod Larsen, the police clerk, Ove Brun, and the local newspaper editor, Burger Runa. And they basically um, go around among all their friends. They say, we need gasoline, we need fishing boats, we need this, we need that. And they help people to cross from, from Helsingor into Sweden. And it's actually one of their boats that you can see to this day in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Do you know, Dominic, that that Holocaust Museum was the first Holocaust Museum I went to. And I, I re- you know, you just end up, you just feel kind of stunned as you go around it. And I remember going into the room where the boat was, and it was, it was the first kind of glimpse of compassion and hope, almost, that that entire museum had offered. And I remember breaking into tears shamelessly 
and I was not the only person. I know exactly what you mean, Tom, because reading this story, there's a, there's a nice um, account of it called Countryman by Bo Lidegaard, a, a Danish newspaper editor, published in English. And some of the stories in that are so moving, I think it's hard to, to read them, actually, without sort of tears springing to your eyes. Because amid the darkness and the horror and, and the immolation of all kindness and charity, looking at that boat and reading the account, I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten it. Oh, good. I'm glad. To, I'm glad you. I'm glad you agree with me because I think there's something about the small scaleness of it mm. and the sort of ordinariness and the that makes it so moving. So another example of the three examples I was going to give is a group called the Friends of the Sound. Um, the Sound being the the strait between Denmark and Sweden, and they meet in a. The, this is basically organised by some the innkeepers in a village called Snekersten. So they meet at the inn in Snekersten. They they put up a lot of Jews Jewish families in the inn and they put them up in nearby homes, and the fishermen and the sort of the local people, the local villagers there, they alone transported almost a thousand people um, across the strait to Sweden. And there's actually a sad element to this story, which is that the innkeeper, who was a guy called Henry Christen, he was arrested by the Gestapo. Then they released him, and then later on, because of his resistance activities. They arrested him again a year later, and he ended up in a concentration camp where he died before the end of the war. So that's that's the yeah. Well, that's know. a reminder of of the fact. Yeah, I mean, of the it's states. not just an alien comedy. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, and the the final um, thing I want to hone in on is a, is a particular village called Gilalea, which is on the the coast. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. So Danish listeners, I'm I'm very sorry. Um, th- so there, there is a there is a bit of and again a, a bit of darkness. There are about 80 Jews hidden um, in the church, in the church loft. And the, supposedly the girlfriend, a girl who is going out with the German um, soldier or whatever, uh, lets slip that they're there. And they are, they are all captured except for a boy who hides behind a gravestone in the cemetery. But many hundreds more um, Jews and, and, um, and their families are hidden in Galileo and the Germans don't find them. And the Germans are social. It's a wonderful story that um, they see the, the grave digger, but the grave digger says to the Gestapo, the poor Jews and the German Gestapo guy says, it's written in the Bible that this shall be their fate. And the grave digger says, but it's not written that it has to happen in Galileo. And that kind of determination of the local people that it won't, you know, we're going to make sure it doesn't happen here. It's so moving. There's a, the, the one quotation there's an engineering student called Wilhelm Lind who is determined to he's one of the people who's helping them and he describes how on the 6th of October they basically get the signal the Germans have gone it's tight they can come out it's time for them to cross and he says he 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 recalls afterwards he says the once so peaceful seaside resort now sitting there quietly in autumn with almost empty streets was suddenly full of life in a moment all the doors sprang open and Jews flowed out of almost every house. In an instant, the whole main street was full of people, women and men from the youngest toddlers to grey-haired old men, poor and rich, all on the run from the barbarians. And he, he helps a little girl. Who's As you several- say, I mean, incredibly cinematic. Yeah, he helped yeah. this little girl. I mean, this very Spielberg detail, a little girl gets, celebrate- gets separated from her family. She's wearing a red coat. Exactly. And Wilhelm sees her he puts her on the handlebars of his bike and he cycles to the to the quay and she gets on the boat and off they go and he says i swallowed and swallowed and found it hard to hold back the tears whether it was the joy that everything seemed to go so well 
or the bitterness of having to witness that kind of thing in a Nordic country in the year 1943, or maybe because of both. So in total, Tom, 7,743 people crossed the Orison to Sweden, and only about 580 Danish Jews failed to escape. So I say only, but of course, each one of these people, I mean, it must have been absolutely awful. Some of them stay hidden in Denmark to the end of the war, but most of them who remain, 464, they're captured and they're sent to Theresienstadt, the concentration camp in Czechoslovakia. But even then, actually, there is kind of, um, I mean, it sounds weird to say an upside to the story, but the Danish are outraged at this. The Danish say to the Germans, we'll never cooperate with you unless you allow us to send food parcels, medicine parcels, and so on to these people. And as you promise us, you will not deport them to extermination camps. And unbelievably, the Germans don't. How many survived the war then? Who, who gets So um, the vast majority of those survived. So in total, more than 99% of Denmark's Jewish population survived the war, which is a truly extraordinary thing. W- what is it about Denmark? Is it that it's possible to save them, whereas in other countries it's not? Is, is the, the tradition of anti-Semitism less toxic? Um, I mean, what's going on? So historians, political scientists have, have spent oceans of ink on this question. Why is it that, for example, in Denmark, 99% of the Jewish population survived, whereas in, let us say, the Netherlands, so many thousands of people are killed? What one answer would be is that there isn't a neutral country within ready access across, across the beach. I mean, yeah. That, that, so there are multiple explanations. One very popular one, which Bo Lidegaard gives in his book Countrymen, he says Denmark had created something almost unique before the war, which is this incredibly patriotic, democratic, civic culture in which Danish Jews were seen as Danes like anybody else. There's no, virtually no anti-Semitism. And um, people genuinely thought it was their, they were, had a solidaristic civic culture in which people thought it was their duty to come together as Danes. You know, the king symbolizes this, all of this stuff. And there's a kind of a, a tremendous sense of democratic citizenship. Hannah Arendt, in her book Eichmann in Jerusalem, she said, you know, that it, it, it's the sort of power of the human spirit. She says, Denmark is the only case we know of in which the Nazis met with open native resistance. And the results seem to be that those exposed to it changed their minds. They had met resistance based on principle and their toughness melted like butter. And that, in a way, is that what you might call the sort of school assembly. You know, you can stand up to horrible evil. All you need to do is. But of course, as you rightly say, there is a bit more to it. So first of all, um, there is the fact that Sweden is so close and you, it can be done in a way that it can't be done from the Netherlands or from France or something. Secondly, is the fact that Sweden has already so the Swedes come out of this very well because they have publicly signaled that they will accept Jewish refugees in a way that they didn't necessarily need to do, but it reflects very well on them. And, and did, then they, also, did they suffer for that from the Nazis? No, they did didn't. They? No, they didn't. And then the third thing, of course, is the Jewish population is just so small. It can be done in Denmark in a way that would have been very hard to do in, let's say, France or indeed in Holland. Is it, so is it, also, is it also a fact that, um, well, Denmark until martial law gets introduced is treated with relatively speaking by Nazi standards, kid gloves. And so perhaps uh, the, the German occupiers are kind of less attuned to the idea that they can just shoot people. 
willy-nilly yes perhaps. you're absolutely right tom and i think this is the other element in the story which is the mo- i said that there, that there were going to be surprising people who come out well and this is the other and most ambiguous element which is that the factor that perhaps is not discussed so much is that it's also a question of the germans so i said that the guy running denmark was an ss general called Werner best and Werner best the thing that really is important to him is to when germany it, it, it's embattled it's short it's it's got tremendously strict rationing it is short of all kinds of supplies the war is going badly his absolute priority is to maintain the flow of agricultural produce from denmark and he needs danish cooperation to do that so denmark is called during the war it's called germany's pantry or people talk about it as the whipped cream front because basically you made that joke about bacon but that's absolutely right well it wasn't a joke because i know that that uh, i you know before the war um denmark was london's larder yeah absolutely and best is is absolutely he thinks we cannot risk sabotage and strikes and all this kind of thing so when he actually organizes that i mean he's in charge of the germans when he organizes the roundup of the of the jews he tells the soldiers you have to knock on the door first you can't smash down any doors you can't smash down windows so there's actually a story of one family that actually jewish family that are just asleep and sleep through the so-called rounding up and are never rounded up because they just didn't answer the door um you also asked about boats and i I said i would get to that about why the germans don't monitor shipping um best orders all german patrol boats into harbor during this period this these crucial few days at the beginning of october 1943 he says it's it's very important um to repaint all our patrol vessels. Right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, he also, I mean, this is a very famous story. He has his, he has a, a Jewish tailor in Copenhagen called Raphael Bodin. And Best goes to get a suit measured just before the roundup. And he says to his tailor as he's leaving, oh, by the way, you might want to, um, you might want to go and hide into hiding pretty soon and tell your friends. So uh, in a weird way, the SS general who's in charge of the whole thing and this is a quite an ealing comedy-ish element. You can imagine a 1950s British film director enjoying casting the noble German or whatever. Well, is it... Okay, so what happens to him at the end of the war? He's a witness at the Nuremberg trials. Um, he's sentenced to death by a Danish court because of his, obviously, his role as the sort of plenipotentiary, the man running Denmark. But his sentence is reduced to 12 years on appeal. There are various sort of talk of war crimes, but he's never really... You know, he never suffers tremendous punishment. Um, he joins and I mean, Best is a, most people would say Best is a sort of opportunist. He's not an idealist by any means. Um, he did this because he basically wanted the bacon. I mean, that's the sort of the, the bizarre irony of the whole thing. But the man who is the regarded as the, a lot of people as the real hero is that bloke, Georg Duckfitz, because him, not Drakeford, Duckfitz, not Drake, Duckfitz, because him giving the, the nod to the Danish politicians. He knew exactly what he was doing. He gave the nod to the Danish politicians who then told the chief rabbi, who then told all the um, his Jewish congregation. Doug Witz, after the war, he has a, you know, his life is actually, it's quite a, a sort of, um, it's a happy ending. He becomes the West German ambassador to Denmark and then later to India. He becomes secretary of state in the foreign office under um, Willy Brandt. And in 1971, he is named righteous among the nations by the Israeli government. And he's, his name is in the Yad Vashem 
Holocaust Memorial in Israel. And today, Tom, if you go to Yad Vashem, there is a tree um, which commemorates King Christian X and the Danish resistance movement, and there is a fishing boat from the village of Gilalea. It's such a... I I went to... I think I mentioned this in the bonus episode we did. Um, I went to Roskilde, just outside Copenhagen, where all the... um, Danish, the the Viking, ships. yes, it's the Viking, but, but it's also has a cathedral where the, so it's the Westminster Abbey of, um, of, of Denmark where the Kings and Queens are buried. And I saw, um, I, I saw Christian's grave and I, I didn't know the story in the detail that you've told me today, but I was very much aware of it as being, yeah, I mean, an incredibly moving, a powerful story. And one that, as you say, so much of history is, I think gives you a slanted sense of, of human nature because that is what tends to get into the history books. But this is one that reminds you that people can do good and be brave. Absolutely. And yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a lovely story, I think, because the, there are lots of occasions where there are heroes in history, but not many where you can genuinely say pretty much an entire country yeah. um, did the right thing. Behave so it's well. possible that it's, I mean, of course, it's as possible we said, that Denmark will come out best then of our our thirty two episodes. Yes, so I think Denmark and Costa Rica, yes. um, Tom, they're my tips yes. for the uh, for World Cup glory. If we have a public World vote on, glory. on World, yeah. yeah, if there's a World Cup of uh, of, of good behaviour, yeah. I think they they well um, maybe maybe when we uh, when we finish all these, we could um, yeah we can look back over it, do some uh, post tournament analysis. Uh, <laughs> that final between King Christian the <laughs> 10th and Don, Don, Pe- Don Pepe Figueres. <laughs> it's the clash they're all we'll talking be- about. <laughs> okay. Well, Dominic, that was, uh, that was great. Dare I say a tour de force, uh, very, a very powerful, oh, Tom, very powerful very and moving episode. Uh, and I hope everyone listening, uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll be back. I can't remember what we're coming back with next. Normal cynical form will be resumed next time. Sadly. Yes. So thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.